I just wanted to say something at the very beginning, just those of you that are, uh, that are older. Um, some of you will remember a lady called Jean Darnell, who um, was the most remarkable, one of the most remarkable people I've ever met. She was an American Pentecostal lady who gave 25 years of her life to this country, had an amazing prophetic and healing ministry, and often came and uh, she told stories nearly as well as Judy Moore does. And she, she um, came, came to the church quite a few times, and it was a huge blessing to us. But she died about two months ago at the age of 96, just before her 97th birthday. I thought you'd like to know that because I had the opportunity last week at her memorial service to send in a video uh, to thank really uh, her, even though she wasn't there, uh, for all that she gave to this country over that time. I remember the last time I met her, we, we were in Los Angeles at a friend's house, and um, she came in for dinner. And she sat down and said, oh, I've got a good story for you. She said, um, there were two uh, elderly people sitting in the corridor of an old people's home, and suddenly this completely naked woman ran down the corridor at great speed and disappeared out of sight. And one person turned to the other and said, who on earth was that? The other person said, I have no idea, but whatever she was wearing certainly needed ironing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a bit like the story of the old man who was standing, he was talking to his friend. He said, you know, I was standing naked in front of the mirror this morning, and I was just horrified at what I saw. Everything is drooping. My shoulders are drooping, my chest is drooping, my hips are drooping, my legs are drooping, everything's going south. Oh, well, said the, the other man. He said, at least be thankful you can still see. <laughs> so I think I'm, I'm nearly in that category, so I need a bit of ironing. But it's very nice of whoever, for Tim to actually ask me still to come up and speak for, uh, this morning, so it's fantastic. And the subject is worship. We're talking about um, living, living life well and uh, what are the things we can put into our lives in order for us to live life well We've gone through a whole series of things this year. Now we've been looking at worship uh, over these last uh, two weeks, and this is the third one uh, in this particular category. And it's such an incredibly important subject to think about, as long as we don't think about it just in terms of what we do here uh, on a Sunday. This is only the, 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 the external, if you like, the show part of what real worship is. In fact, it's, it's rather salutary to think on the first Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago, Hundreds and thousands, probably thousands of people turned out to greet Jesus. They cheered him and they threw garments before him and palm branches. And it was a fantastic worship celebration as Jesus came in to Jerusalem. And some of those same people within a week were crying out, crucify him. What on earth could have happened in that time? He disillusioned them. They began to realize he wasn't what they wanted. In other words, the worship they gave him on Palm Sunday was not as deep as it needed to be. Friends of mine said to me recently, they went to a Coldplay cold, cold concert, lucky things, and said, we stood there with our arms in the air, swaying to the music, thinking, my word, this is just like being in a Christian worship service. And we want to provide something in our services that is more profound and deeper than that. But it comes because we see what worship really is at its heart, which we've already heard about this morning. So I want to start with this passage. Uh, Paul is in Athens. He's gone to the synagogue. He said some controversial things, and uh, people have um, uh, encouraged him to come out to the, the, the area where the elders of the city met. How many people have been to Athens? Some people have been there, quite a few of you. Those who haven't, don't hurry there. Um, it's an incredibly polluted city. The most startling thing in the city is, is the, um, uh, the Acropolis, which sits on a hill. 
overseeing most of the city and the new museum, which is near it. And at the end of that area, there's a huge rock, which is known as Mars Hill or the Areopagus. And a group of people used to meet there regularly to discuss and to share and to talk and to, 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 to think through the things of the day. So they got Paul out there to discuss with them because of these controversial things he had said. And he said to them, I've been looking around and I see a whole lot of objects of worship but I've also noticed that there's this one altar to an unknown God. There may well have been several of those, in fact. And he said, I want to tell you certain things about this God that you don't know. And, and uh, let me list some of the things that he points out to them. This is what God is like, the one that you don't know, that you're, you're wanting to worship but can't find him. First of all, he says, this God is the maker and not the made. He's the maker and not the made. The things that you worship, he calls them objects of worship, they are things the word worship in the English language comes from two parts, worth and ship. We give worth to something. What we give value to, what we esteem valuable, is what we worship. And uh, mainly they are objects. And most of us in our lives, we have objects in our lives that we worship, we give value to. And they're idols. And the thing about an idol is this. An idol, we, we worship idols because they give us something and we give them something back in return. We give them our attention, we give them our time, we give them our money, we give them a whole lot of things, and they give something back to us. So we fill our lives, it might be work, it might be uh, your car, it might be your home, it might be an, a device, it might be anything. But what we do is we, we as it were, we sit, I was gonna sit on a chair, we sit, here, I'll sit on here. We sit on our throne like this, and we have our things around us in our lives, and they, they give us something. They give us security. They make us feel good. They make us feel happy. They give us pleasure. They give the uh, people's, people honor us for them. But we have them in our lives, and we give them attention, and they serve us. But they're, they're on the circumference of our lives, and we're still sitting on the throne of our lives. The most dangerous thing that can happen to somebody is that as you're living this life, and by the way, those things will always disappoint you. They will always let you down. But since if you have nothing else, you want to hang on to them. The most dangerous thing that can happen is somebody comes along and says, you've got something missing in your life, and said, oh, yes, I, I certainly have. Can you recommend what I need to have? And they say, it's Jesus. Oh, yes. Jesus will give you peace and joy and happiness, and he'll, he'll, he'll heal, you, heal you when you're sick, and he'll give you money when you're poor. Fantastic. That's what I need. So I'll get Jesus into my life. I'll put him on the circumference of my life, and he can give me all those things. And that isn't Christianity. But it's how many of us see Christianity. And Paul is at pains to say, actually, the, what, what needs to happen is that not that you have Jesus and everything else on the circumference of your life to serve you as things, as idols, but you get off the throne and you put him there. And God becomes the center and you become the one who is now worshiping the person at the center. And that this God, he's saying, is not a thing. He's not an object. He's a person. And he wants to come into the center of your life because he, he will not disappoint you. If you put Jesus on the circumference of your life like all the other idols, he will always disappoint you because he won't actually give you what you want. And you'll feel fed up and cross because Jesus didn't deliver on the things you expected him to. That's not Christianity. To be a Christian is to have God right at the center of your life, to put him on the throne. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That he becomes the center and everything else, we revolve around him. You probably know that in about 1546, I think, Copernicus decided that actually it was wrong to say that the earth was the center of the universe. He, he, he came up with a theory that the earth revolved around the sun. Now, that was a shocking thing, both scientifically and emotionally. Scientifically, because they didn't understand it. Emotionally, 
because suddenly that he was putting out the fact that the earth was no longer the center of everything and other things, everything didn't revolve around the earth. It took nearly 100 years for scientists to really come to the conclusion that was true, that actually the earth's circumference is the sun. But when that happens in a person's life, when God the maker becomes the center, actually everything else falls into place and we're free. I was interested to watch on the telly about a month or two ago when the floods were in Malawi and Mozambique. You probably saw them as well. And devastated. We have many friends out there who wrote to us about it. But on the television news, there was a picture of a village where almost everything had been decimated. And all they had, instead of buildings, were just bricks lying on the ground and the water everywhere. And there were a group of people standing in the ruins of this building who almost certainly had nothing. And when I say nothing, I mean nothing, apart from the clothes they stood up in. And they were dancing for sheer joy and praising God. Why? Because he was the center of their lives. And you couldn't take that away. They'd put him right in the middle. And because he was still there, they could rejoice. And the other things they had didn't matter at that moment in time because they knew they still had him. And I think that's what Paul is saying to this. The unknown God is not an idol. He's not an object of things you worship. He is actually the maker of all things. He says a number of other things too. He says he's the Lord of history. He's the author of life. Uh, if you look through the black hole, you'll find still he is the author of life. And he's the author of history. He moves nations around. He is in charge of the whole, of the whole world. Of course, the sinful nature of man means that we determine quite a lot of things that happen. But God oversees things. It is interesting, isn't it? Even in the greatest evils, God is at work maneuvering history. We were in Egypt not very long ago, and we were talking to some people there, and they were saying to us that the, because of ISIS, probably the greatest evil we've known in our, in, maybe in our lifetime, uh, and the terrible destruction they have caused and the evil they've brought to the world, that because of ISIS, across the North Africa, North Africa and into parts of the uh, Middle East, millions upon millions of uh, Muslims have become Christians because they've reacted to what's going on in ISIS. And one man we met said, I know 50 imams who have turned to Christ. Because of that, and because they've had visions and dreams of Jesus, but out of the evil, God has done something amazing and is still doing. Probably the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran, uh, or amongst Iranians, rather, around the world. And then he goes on to say, and this particular God, he made us to long for him. And he's put inside us a longing which will never be satisfied until we find him. A groping in the darkness, he describes. And he is very close to people. People are looking for him. They don't know they're looking for him, but they're groping for something. And he is incredibly close. And it's not a thing they're looking for, actually. It's a person. And he says the days of groping, the days of, 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 of not finding this thing, the days of ignorance have gone because light has come into the world. Jesus said light's come into the world. People have darkness rather than light. And so they can find him. And then he goes on to say the day of judgment is coming because he's chosen uh, the one who will judge all of us. It's a, it's a great shame today in the Western world that the whole concept of judgment has been almost pushed on one side because we don't like to talk about it. But the, the, these, the, these knowledgeable uh, Epicureans and Stoics of the day, they believe that when you die, you're obliterated. And some believe that when you die, you get assimilated into God. Paul says, no, that when you die, there's judgment. Because we live in a, in a world of right and wrong, there's got to be judgment. And he says, that's part of the nature of this God. He will judge all of us. And that's a scary thing. But the good news, he said, is this, that the judge has been appointed and the judge is Jesus. 
And he's the one who died for us on the cross so that out of his grace we can receive forgiveness and new life. So he's the judge. So those who have come to him can find this freedom and this forgiveness. And that's the heart of worship, that we come to him, the one who has given himself for us, who died for us, who comes to forgive us. And he says the way through is through repentance. And the proof of all of this is because Jesus rose from the dead. I remember when I became a Christian, uh, or I was becoming a Christian, I got hold of a book, some of you will have read it, called Who Moved the Stone? Written by a lawyer who set out to prove the resurrection didn't take place. And in the preparation for his book, he talked himself into believing the resurrection did take place, so he rewrote the book. And that was a turning point for me to discover the resurrection was true. Because if the resurrection was true, and Paul's saying that here, then everything else is true. All this is true about God. This unknown God is true because of the resurrection. And that's what, of course, made them stop and listen and, and, uh, and to talk. And so the worship basically, at its heart, is putting this God, this unknown God to them, but known to us, at the center of our lives and putting everything else around it. This God who loves us, who gave himself for us, who died for us, who rose again from the dead to demonstrate the truth of everything that had been said, this God comes at the center of our lives, and that's where worship is. I don't know if any of you remember being when you were at school. One of my great delights at school, the, my favorite lesson probably, was um, the pottery lesson. Do you remember doing pottery at school? Fantastic. You, get all this, you put this thing on, and then you get this slushy, muddy stuff, and you can make a mess. It's fantastic. And you get sat by this wheel, and you get this uh, slushy stuff, and you shove it onto the wheel like this. You throw it. Professionally, that's what you do. Throw it on the wheel. And then you pedal away, and the wheel goes around and around. And then you put your hands on it like this, and you hold your hands very steady, and a miracle takes place. This pot rises from the, from the bottom. Have you remember doing this? Fantastic. And then, and then you notice something. A wobble starts. Do you remember the wobble? You haven't moved your hands as far as you know, and the thing is starting, whoop, 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 whoop. It's going like this. And, then you, and you try again and again, and you still get this jolly, odd-shaped pot. So everybody else has got those too. So you put it in the kiln, you paint it with something or other, take it home to mum, and mum says, oh, isn't that lovely? What she means is, what on earth is it? And um, <laughs> she puts it in the cupboard with all the other odd things that you've made because she loves you. And some of you parents have got stuff at home just like that. Well, the reason it's gone wobbly, and we know this, is because the, the clay is not in the middle of the wheel. And our lives are wobbly. They're out of shape. They're very cute, but they're out of shape so often because we haven't left him in the center of everything in our lives and that everything revolves around him. We have these other things, but he is at the center. And the closer he gets to the center of our lives, the less wobble occurs within us. So if that's the heart of worship, what does it mean to worship? The, the word used, there's many words used in the New Testament to worship. And um, uh, the most familiar one, the most common one, is, is a word that's mentioned 59 times, proskynio, proskynio. And it means this, if you'd like to stand up, Lewis, it means to walk towards somebody with a purpose of kissing them or <laughs> Shall I do it again? It was nice, actually. <laughs> The reason I did it for, to Lois, by the way, is because I love her. I'm not going to do it to any other woman in this place. And I love her. And she, um, she's given her life to me for 47 years. 
and uh, I've given my life to her. But it means to walk towards somebody with the purpose of kissing them, which is a, which is a sign of respect and honor and affection. That's what it is to worship. Discovering the God who is, the unknown God who is, this amazing God, we worship him by walking to going towards him to express honor and we go towards him as if to kiss. No wonder Jesus said in John chapter 4 when he was talking to the woman at the well who was going on about the fact, oh, I know about you Jews, you like to worship him here, we like to worship him over here. And Jesus says to this woman, my dear woman, he says, not quite like that, but it's roughly, um, <clears throat> he says, my dear lady, it has nothing to do with where you worship. It's like someone saying to you, where do you go to church? What a nonsense question. You don't go to church, you belong to church. Where do you worship? Everywhere. Frustrating answer, but it's the truth. If you say, I worship at Queensbridge, I assume it's because you, you're at school here or you teach here, but coming here on a Sunday is not to worship at Queensbridge. It's a, Jesus says it's nothing to do with where you do it. It's how you do it. It's what's going on inside you that matters. I'm not interested in where you go or what place you're in. It's what's going on inside you. I want you to worship God in spirit and in truth. In truth means I know, I believe. I believe these truths about God. I believe he is a mighty great God. I believe he exists. I believe he oversees history. I believe he waits for people to find him. I believe he calls us to repent. I believe that he forgives us. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that. That's the truth, and I want to come to God because of that truth. But secondly, it's out of my spirit, because when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into you, and something happens inside emotionally that lets you loose. And Jesus is almost like, I want you to speak in truth, but I also want, I want the spirit, your spirit, to combine with my spirit. There's a joining together. That's what really worship will be. doesn't matter where it is, but it's how you do it. Out of your innermost being, Jesus said, will flow rivers of living water. So what does it mean to worship? Three things. Firstly, it means a consecration of our whole lives. Every moment of your life is an act of worship. I know you're at work and you're at play and doing other things, but there is a sense in your life that my, the, center, the centering of my life is God. He's there at the middle. He's on the throne of my life. Other things are there, yes, but he's at the center. That's the heart of worship. So involve him. I think a few weeks ago, I wasn't here at a family service. You had um, uh, a crepe paper. Did you do the pass the parcel? And you had crepe paper at every level. That's worship. That's a discovering that God is at every point of your life. He's there everywhere, whether it's a work or place. Secondly, personal worship, that you worship alone on your own. That means just finding time in your day. It may be in the morning, it might not be able to be there, it might be at lunchtime, it might be just as you're walking home or down the street or in the car. Just times in your day where you just sit quietly in your heart and you tell him you love him. That you, as it were, you, like the old farmer who said, someone said to him, how do you worship? And he says, well, I just sit and he looks at me and I looks at him. You understand that, don't you? Just times in your day when you just speak to him. You tell him how great he is, how much you love him, what he means to you. Just a personal act of quiet and worship before him. This is how to live life well, is to have these times in your life where you're just able to be quiet. It might be because you're in a lovely place. It might not be. It might be because you're just taking a break at lunchtime. But there are times to honor him. You remember Paul and Silas in the, later on in the Acts and the apostles, they're in prison. 
And um, <clears throat> or actually, just pre previous to this, rather, they're in prison in Philippi. And uh, in the, late in the night, they start to sing praises to God. Do you think they did it because they thought, oh, it's a bit boring in here. Let's sing some songs. Anybody remember a chorus or two? Do you think that's what they did? I don't think so. I think they were in that cold, damp prison. And in the midst of when they had nothing else, they knew that God was with them. And they said, let's honor God. Started to sing. And of course, the doors were open and the Philippine jailer got in a panic and all this sort of stuff started to happen. It's a part of personal worship, how to live life well. And the closer God is to the heart of your life, and the more we allow just personally to worship him, it will help us to live our lives well. Why? There's a lovely passage in the book of Daniel. And um, <clears throat> uh, Daniel chapter 6. And it says this about Daniel, that three times a day he went up to his, he went up to his room, he looked, uh, opened the window that looked towards Jerusalem, and he prayed to God. What was he doing? Do you know what I think he was? He couldn't possibly have seen Jerusalem from his window. Not possibly. He was a, he was a governor in the, in the land of Babylon. He was full of Babylonian ideas and Babylonian stuff and Babylonian thought and Babylonian people. And three times a day, he thought, I'll go up to my room. I'll look out the window towards Jerusalem and I'll remind myself of another world. That I'm a citizen not of this country, but of another country. And I think that's what we do in our personal worship. In the midst of all the business of the day, in the secular world in which we're in, all that's going on, we stop and say, actually, I belong to another world. I'm part of another kingdom. It's a refreshing of our hearts for that. And then um, third thing to say, there's the corporate worship. And the corporate worship, when we come together, is a gathering of individuals, initially, who have in their own hearts are worshiping God. So this isn't it. If this is your worship for the week, that's a very shallow worship life. Because we come together as those who have put God at the center and who want to spend time with him individually. So when we come together, there's a joining together of our hearts and minds. That's why the Bible says, do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. But even more, as you see, the day of the Lord is coming. We need to meet together as often as we possibly can. And part of that time is to worship God. And I just wanted to give you six things as I close that I've jotted down that I think are important for worship as we gather together. <clears throat> Excuse me. And remember, as I said about Coldplay, when you, get, when you get into a big meeting of everybody really hyped up on worship, part of that is a human spirit. You need to understand that. When we're together like that, we have a human, it's God-given, it's a human oneness. But there's something deeper and more profound that happens. You don't have to work yourself up into a state to have the presence of God in the midst. Something else happens when people who are worshipers come together. It's a deeper thing. And God says, I inhabit the praises of my people. He comes in the midst of us and speaks to us. I remember a lady in this church many years ago sat back there, she was. In the middle of the service, uh, she had cancer, quite seriously ill. And she just came into the service. And as she lifted her hands to worship the Lord, God touched her and healed her. There wasn't a great hype. There wasn't a great thing going on. Just God entered into the room, as it were, in the midst of that time. Here's the six things, if you like. First of all, it's all about him and not about us. It's all about him and not about us. I, I found myself over the years often going away from services saying, oh, I didn't get much out of that. I didn't enjoy that. I didn't like those. I didn't really enjoy this morning. Did you enjoy this morning? It has nothing to do with whether I enjoyed it or not. My question should be, did God enjoy this morning? And he would have enjoyed it if I came with the right attitude and the right heart. He would have loved it. 
And that's why it's difficult. I mean, I, I think the songs we've had this morning, thank you, Ben, so much, and the others, fantastic. It's hard because over the years, I mean, in the old days, <clears throat> even before I was born, when John Wesley was alive and other people, they wrote the most amazing hymns. And most of those old hymns are powerful hymns about God. And, uh, and, and just if there's been a spate in our history in the last 10, 20 years of a lot of songs about me. And if you notice that, about what God's done for me, he makes me feel good. Thank you, God, for making me feel good. And I sort of understand that, but actually worship is more than that. It's about God. We enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. We enter his courts with praise, and then we come into the place of adoration. Thank you, God, for what you've done. I praise you for who you are, and now I want to tell you I love you. And the heart of worship is about God. Everything's good, geared towards him. That's what it is. So it's not about me. It's not about me, it's about him. Secondly, it's not about substance. It's, about su it's, it's all about substance and not about style. You may prefer you to worship in a particular way. Don't criticize somebody else who doesn't. My, my father, who died about three or four years ago, I think, uh, exactly now, this week, um, at the age of 90, and uh, he, was a, he was a good Anglican. I haven't used that phrase. I'm not quite sure what a bad Anglican is, but he was a good Anglican. <laughs> He was a very devout Anglican, and um, uh, he never talked much about his faith, but it, it was very deep in him, I think. But he never said anything, and then when he died, he left a lot of, he'd written a lot of stories and poems and stuff, and I came across this poem in his private files, and it says this. It's about worship. They raise their hands to heaven when they pray. We kneel, and only God hears what we say. Their hymns are new and strike a modern note. We sing the verses that our forefathers wrote. They sometimes, as they sing, dance to and fro. We genuflect each time we come and go. Uh, you know something about the way he worshipped. They call out, hallelujah, praise the Lord. We chant responses to an organ's chord. Some of them speak in tongues when called to speak. We beg for mercy three times three in Greek. They think our ways are old and artificial. We tend to think that theirs are superficial. And God looks down, bewildered from above, for all he asks is faith and hope and love. So lest our chosen road to him we lose, let's not despise the path that others choose. Makes me cry to read that. I can't believe my dad wrote it. So it's, it's nothing to do with how you do it. It's what you're saying and who you are. I have to say, by the way, though, I, I think that when we come to worship God, it's great to be able... This is a style, isn't it? But I think it's great to be able to lift our hands or whatever it is. We, just to be open, we use our bodies a bit more. We often sing a song here, we lift our hands, and we should do that. We should, I mean, unless you, unless you have a, 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 a frozen shoulder or serious arthritis, if I was to ask you who likes coffee, you'd all put your hands up. We're all capable of putting our hands up, aren't we? We're not invalids in that way. But I want to tell you that the opening of the hands in worship, not necessarily like that, but just the opening of the hands, I tell you what it does. It opens your body up. It opens your soul up. It's an extraordinary thing to do that. I just want to encourage you, if you don't, just, if, you, if you're nervous or you feel embarrassed to do that, close your eyes and pretend nobody else is watching and just do it because it's lovely. That's a style thing, so I apologize for that. But I, I think it's, um, it's a great thing to do. Anyway, it's all about him and not about us. It's all about substance and not style. It's about the heart as much as the head. We need the head because we need to believe what we're, we're singing. And that's why words on the page here, as they come on the song sheet, we need to understand what we're singing. 
Can't sing stuff we don't understand. But at the end of the day, it's my heart. It's my heart reaching out to God. God, I, I just want to tell you this morning how great you are. Thank you for this opportunity. Just one hour here together with my brothers and sisters to say that. Fourthly, it's about giving and not getting. If you read 1 Corinthians 14, it's the only account in the New Testament of a worship service in the New Testament. Thank the Lord there isn't another one. Because we would all have copied it and said this is New Testament worship. All it gives is a general principle, but the principle is there. In 1 Corinthians 14, is when they came together, everybody gave something. It's not about give, getting, it's about giving. So you come to the service in the morning saying, I want to come to give something. I want to give a prayer. Or I just want to give a song. Or I want to give a testament. I want to give. I want to give to God. Don't expect to get. If you get, that's a blessing. If you go away saying, I got something great this morning, well done you. Fantastic. Isn't God wonderful? But you didn't come for that. You haven't come for that. You've come to give something. We all come to give something to God. It's an offering. The only tangible thing we do like that is take the offering, by the way, because we know we're giving money to God, but we come to come to give to God. That's all about giving and not about getting. Can I just say one little thing here? Oh, is this a... I don't know whether I should. Yes, I can, because I'm not a leader anymore. <laughs> <clears throat> I think if you're coming to give and not to get, there's, a, there's a, an endemic problem in the church in the UK. You talk to any clergyman or any vicar or any leader, they'll tell you the same. In every church in the UK, nowadays, worship services on Sunday have become a leisure activity, and therefore people don't mind when they turn up. I just want to say to you, these guys prepare the service on Sunday from the moment it starts. It's not difficult. Now it's moved to 10.30, but people... Do. I know sometimes the cat's sick and the dog's died and the children are late. I know all that. But generally speaking, I think we ought to be here before the service starts and not after it. Because then we can all start together with a sense of community. I, I, that's not a rebuke. But I think if we come to give, that should be the attitude. This is not about me. It's about coming to give something to God. And I want to be there five minutes early, drag the kids in, even if they haven't got their clothes on, bring them, and uh, we start together. Two other things. It is about variety and not about singing. I'm so glad that when Nat introduces the worship time, the singing time, he says, we're going to have sung worship. Because the singing is not the worship. The whole thing is the worship. The prayer is the worship. The testimony is the worship. The saying thank you to these wonderful people, that is part of our worship. The whole thing is our worship and not just the singing. And the last thing I want to say is this, that our worship time together is an inc inclusive experience and not an exclusive, exclusive experience. And you read again um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14. You'll see there that Paul very clearly writes how to treat the unbelievers who come into your midst. And we should expect on a Sunday and make it a place where anybody who's not yet a Christian, I hope there are people this morning who are not yet Christians. I hope there are people this morning who are wondering about what on earth I'm talking about. But you're glad, we're glad you're here. This should be a place where people who are not yet Christians really feel welcomed. And that we do two things. All of us feel on a Sunday, we could meet someone in the week and we could easily invite them into our worship time. We want them to come and be with us as a family. So there's always on a Sunday people who are not yet Christians. And every time we come, we're looking out for people in the service here. And the people I don't know, maybe they're not yet Christians. I can get alongside them. We'd love to have you here. It's great that you're here if you don't yet know Jesus. But this is a, this is a welcoming body. So as we do that and we welcome the presence of the Lord Jesus amongst us, then something of our worship will touch our hearts and lives week by week. But at the very essence of worship, if it's going to be something that changes our lives, that makes life worth living, it is because we have centered ourselves upon him. And you know, if you're like me, 
you know, there's that phrase, um, Paul used the phrase, um, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual worship. Actually, it's better translated with your reasonable service. But spiritual worship is good. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. David gave that wonderful word just now about sacrifice. There's no worship without sacrifice. As somebody once said, the only problem with living sacrifice is they keep creeping off the altar because we go wandering off. And, you know, times like today, just make reminders just to come back, just to center again on him, that the unknown God doesn't need to be unknown to us, that we're able to say we've found him, we've reached out to him, we've been forgiven, we've centered our lives upon him, and we want daily to give him credence in our lives. And in that way, our lives are enriched and strengthened as we know his presence going through with us.